0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. This is your co host, Posh, and we're here with. I'm Pat. And we're here with Robert Green. You might know him as the author of 48 Laws of Power, The Laws of Human Nature, Art of Seduction, and there's so many more. Just Google his name and you'll find everything about him. But tonight and today, we want to sit down with him and talk about his journey and his upbringing, how he started, why he does what he does, what inspired him to write the books that he's written. And what inspired inspires him to keep going every single day. So Robert, thank you so much for having us at your home and sitting down with us.
1: My pleasure. Now do I call you Posh? You call or? me
0: Posh, you call me Nurses, whatever you want. Okay. Call me friend. Uh, I'm a little uncomfortable. Lakers lover. I'm a little uncomfortable calling
1: you Posh. I think I'll stick to Nurses.
0: Nurses is perfect. <laughs> so um I know that you're a big Lakers fan and uh, I I unfortunately. remember Unfortunately.
1: Yeah, unfortunately for
0: us now. It's a tough time. <laughs> yeah. I texted you when Magic Johnson stepped down. I remember that. They didn't offer me the job. Well, yeah, what happened?
1: What happened? I yeah. don't know.
0: They, I guess I they didn't mean, have your resume.
1: I wrote there was somebody at USC, um, an alumna who was at the event the yeah. other day, who wanted to make arrange a lunch with me and Jeannie, and he's going to do it. Really? But it, it all happened too quickly. I didn't have a chance to put my resume. Well, in I don't think they've well, they hired haven't hired anyone yet. So no, still got time. It's not too late,
2: yeah. and well, and and no one's really particularly happy about the Tyron Lue and I mean, not Tyron Lue. What's Tyron Lue, Monty Williams, Jason Kidd? Those are the coaches. But have they even I mean, talked about a, a, a? I don't know. I hope not. DP here,
1: not yeah, yet.
0: I don't know. Yeah. What do you think about Magic Johnson stepping down?
1: Well, it's a fiasco. I mean, we don't really know what was going on behind the scenes. There was some kind of power game going on. Whether he and Polinka were clashing, whether he and Luke were not on the same page. There was something going on. But um, you know, it's it's a really it's a mess. It's, it's a good kind of case study of an organization. It's in, it's in it's a mess right now. Yeah, and basically. There's no kind of vision for where the Lakers are going to be in a few years. They've fallen way behind the times. It's a classic case of businesses or CEOs or entrepreneurs who kind of had a certain sort of success in the past, and they hold on to the past, and they hold on to a formula that used to work, and they fall further and further behind the Mm -hmm. times. So Jeannie Buss, it's always been a family type thing, right? right? And so she's so much invested in bringing in ex-Lakers, it was the hiring of Byron Scott, which was a disaster. And, of course, Magic and um, other people like that. And so they've fallen way behind. And when it comes to analytics, their training team is, is, is one of the worst in the NBA. Mm-hmm. So all the kind of modern things that make a successful team. They have some good player scouts like Ryan West, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So they've had a few good drafts. But if you look around the teams in the NBA, the sport is really changing. Right. It's getting more into analytics. It's, you know, and and um, there's, the style has changed. It's no longer the Phil Jackson style mm-hmm. that's going to work. Mm-hmm. So she's sort of locked in the past. Right. This is what worked before. Mm-hmm. And the Lakers have to make a radical jump into the present or into the mm-hmm. future now. Mm-hmm. She needs to bring in a, a president of operations. Robert Greene. Hmm? Robert Green Robert Green or yeah. Bob Myers. I know he's a UCLA. Oh, I love Bob Myers. Right? I mean, I went
0: to Loyola Law School. He's a Loyola Law School graduate as well. Uh-oh. But he, he gets it. He's he's like he's in the recent times as far as the game yeah. goes.
1: Yeah, we would think Palinka would be, but Palinka is supposedly um, yeah. just a hard
2: ass agent. I've heard he's not a he's, very like ex- person. I don't think he's experienced either. I mean, he's yeah. an agent, but he hasn't really been in this position. Well, before. so is Bob Myers. Bob, Bob Myers, Myers was, was an, an, agent, an agent, agent as well.
0: Yeah. but I mean, I think he just it yeah. just worked well with the team because the yeah. Golden State wasn't really a powerhouse, but the Lakers I feel like have this thing that you have to be elite all the time, and so there's always that pressure. Very similar.
2: To, we are talking offline about USC, and we went there, and yeah. you're a fan of USC, and they're similar situation. They always talk, you know, hire former coaches or right. alumni or something, and we end up not going anywhere. So, right. and then you see other teams. I mean, you you want to you want obviously have like that family dynamic, and you want to build that culture, but at some point, it just doesn't make sense, right? right?
1: Well, you have to adapt the culture, you know? Um, this is a culture that's not been working for quite a long time, six, seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of mistakes have been going back to the prior era of Jim Buss. What mm-hmm. uh, a disaster. Yeah, so um, they need a shake-up. Right. And that's the hardest thing to do. So when you've known a certain formula or a certain way of doing things, Completely go back and revamp your style is probably one of the most difficult things a leader can do, but probably one of the most important. I
0: agree. And hopefully that hopefully that change comes soon. I'm hopefully. not hopeful. Yeah, I'm not hopeful either, but I'm hoping Yeah, it happens sooner rather than later because it's, it's, sad. You know what? it's sad to see. It was funny. I saw a tweet the other day that said that the Clippers, which I mean, I can't even believe we're talking about this, but they are more relevant to the younger generation now in LA because... Kids have seen the Clippers winning for the last seven, eight years, but the Lakers haven't won in seven or eight years. And so they have all these, like, the Clippers have all these, like, kids' programs. And so kids that are in LA think the Clippers are LA's team. That's really
1: sad. I mean,
2: that's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. You know, because. But they just don't, the team doesn't have that champion, I feel like, with that kind of relates to the kids. Like, LeBron James, I think, is more of that than. (laughs) They could easily get Kawhi Patrick Patrick Beverly. Yeah.
0: They'll get Kawhi and they'll change yeah. things up. Kevin I don't Durant. I
1: Kawhi will come to the Lakers. He'll probably go to the Clippers. The Clippers, that's what I'm saying. The Clippers, yeah. yeah. They'll go to
0: the Clippers. He'll, he'll be, that's all they need to win. Doc Rivers, great coach. But their,
1: but their mentality has always been, we've got to have superstars. We've got to bring back Showtime. We've got to get, bring back the it's Kobe It's never going to happen. But every team is supposedly different. You yeah. have to create a new formula, a new style. And when they, when they got, look at what happened with D'Angelo Russell. Yeah, I was about to say we should Jul- have kept <laughs> Julius Randle. Yeah. Or even Zubac. If yeah. They had kept their players. Just groomed them. And they right now, they would probably be in the playoffs right now. For sure. They might have brought Paul George in because LeBron mm-hmm. wasn't here and he could have been mm-hmm. the star. Mm-hmm. Who knows who would have come. Mm-hmm. They'd be in much better position than they are now. But they get seduced by this idea, if we bring in LeBron, we'll have star power. Jack Nicholson will be there. We'll all be happy. We'll mm-hmm. bring back the glory days. And It's bullshit. Right. It's just a, it's right, just stupidity. Right, you know. I think it started when Jerry Bus,
0: oh uh, sorry, Jerry West, left the team. Like, I mean, the guy goes to the New Orleans Hornets, and or what, are, what were they called back then? Yeah, New Orleans Hornets. Pel- Pelicans. Pelicans now does well there. Goes to Golden State creates the no best i don't think west team. ever
1: went to the pelicans he went to memphis 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 seriously. i think sorry, it started memphis with the versus. passing of jerry buss unfortunately well yeah that yeah.
0: was definitely part of it but now look at him he's at the clippers jerry buss is at the uh, jerry west is at the clippers and yeah. the clippers are re- relevant but anyways the, getting i'm getting sick just talking about the clippers <laughs> yeah sorry um, yeah so robert i want to kind of take it back to before everything before the fame
1: before the books um where did you grow up where were you born i was born in los angeles um, kind of grew up and went to high school on the west side, went to Palisades High School, the same high school as Genie Bus, by the way.
0: Jeannie Bus, you better be
1: listening and taking notes. <laughs> and Steve Kerr. Okay. Steve you're um, talking about <laughs> alumni work right here. Yeah. 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 And um then I went to University of at Berkeley and then I transferred to Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, Madison. And my studies were always in the uh, languages. I, I studied ancient Greek and, and Latin and literature and i always knew i wanted to be a writer so i was kind of um you know sort of figuring out early early on how i could become a writer and make a living because i was my parents were kind of pressuring me to have a more of a legitimate profession you know medicine or law or something and so i went after university i kind of wandered around i went to europe and lived there for a couple of years, just wandering around doing different jobs. What did you do? <clears throat> I worked in a hotel in Paris, which was a great experience. This was where all the fashion models stayed. Yeah. So, yeah. So we can just imagine the great times you had. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <Yeah. laughs> it was like 21. Yeah, prime. And uh, I was working there, I was learning French. I was like the receptionist. And then I worked in. Um, in Greece, I did construction work for a couple months. I kind of ran out of money, so I had to get any kind of job that I could. I taught English in Barcelona. I worked for a television company in London. I just did about everything.
2: Well, and this is all in a span of how many years?
1: Well, um, I went twice, two different times, because in between that I lived in New York. So I lived in Europe for about five years in New York for about four years, and I was doing journalism and i was writing novels and things like that but i couldn't quite figure out where what my niche was you know where i could actually make a living yeah. and be happy and do the kind of writing that would satisfy me and then i moved back to la in the late 80s my father had, had had cancer and he survived but i decided i'd stay here and get into hollywood and i thought that was maybe the answer for as me as a writer as a writer, but I was also working as a, an assistant to a director. I didn't really know exactly what, but mostly as a writer, mm-hmm. I thought maybe this was the answer because I could write, I could make a living. I kind of liked film, and you know, you can make a very good, li- have a very good life that way. But it wasn't a good fit. I'm kind of a control freak. Uh, when I make something or do something, I like to control what I can do. I don't mm-hmm. like other people coming and right. telling me what to do. Right. I'm a bit of a rebel. You know, I'm not happy. In in that kind of situation, mm-hmm. working with a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. So um, in Hollywood, you know, you'd you'd write a screenplay, and then twelve other people would come in and change it. Yeah, there's this or, whole system in place. Yeah, and you had no power. Yeah, but I learned a lot about power there because I saw all the kind of games that were going on behind the scenes. I worked for a director who was very Machiavellian, um, and so um, you know, bringing it up to the present. I like 1995. I uh, was a very unhappy young man. I was, you know, 36 years old, hadn't had any real success, didn't know where I was, what I wanted to do in life. But I hadn't given up. I knew I was somehow meant to do writing. And I met a man in Europe. Well, I was there on another job who was a book packager. He asked me if I had an idea for a possible book. And I just kind of improvised. <laughs> what would turn into the 48 Laws of Power. It was Hmm. a day we were walking in Venice, Italy, along the canals there. Very memorable day. And I kind of told him my ideas and how sort of how I could write the book. And he got very, very excited. And then basically like six months later, he paid me to live while I wrote the treatment because I was completely broke. In Italy or here? Back here. He lived in New York, but he was paying me here. And I was completely broke, so I needed the money. But basically, if you know one of my books, I call The Death Ground. The Death Ground is when you're so desperate, when your back is against the wall and you have no other choice, that's when you often do your best work mm-hmm. because you're extremely motivated, you're angry, you're desperate. And I was like that. Mm-hmm. I was on Death Ground. It was either make this book success or die trying. You know, mm-hmm. this was it for me. So that's sort of the, the backstory behind it.
0: You know, that's interesting. Do you think that, you know, the younger generation, folks that are just kind of starting off with their lives and their careers, do you think they should force themselves into, de- into the death ground?
1: Not really. I mean, it depends. It, you know, it has to come naturally. It has to come organically in the course of your life. I was desperate and frustrated. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can't just tell somebody to be on death ground because right. what will that mean? It has to be real. It has to be organic. So, like... You know, when Cortez arrived in Mexico to put his soldiers on death ground, he burned all the ships so they couldn't go back to Mm. Cuba. So it was either these 400 men conquer all of Mexico or you're going to... The conquistadores. Yes, or else you're going to die in the process. So you can maybe manufacture death ground a little bit. You can give yourself deadlines. You can force yourself to take on a job you're not Mm. quite ready for. There are ways to manufacture it. But I think young people need to have um, a bit of a sense of adventure. You have to kind of have an idea of what you want in life. Like I knew I wanted to write. And then you have to explore. Like, I, I mean, I hate to hold myself up mm-hmm. as the model because there are many different ways you mm-hmm. can go. But when you're young, you should you should explore and you should try different things out and you should see what works for you and what doesn't work for you. I was uh, interviewed two days ago by an ex-football player mm. I don't know how to pronounce his yeah. name. He, worked, he played for the Saints. Okay. Um, he, has a, he has a great podcast and he, he has a, a company that he started. You should interview him at some point. He's a great guy. Definitely, yeah. Um, and he, you know, when he finished the NFL, he didn't know what to do, you know. And so he tried different jobs. He worked for the fire department. He got very depressed. Then he kind of navigated back to a high school that he went to. And he started working with young players, and he got very excited. And then he started having to like train them, and he realized the training wasn't what he wanted to do. And so, slowly, by a process of trying different things, he saw what he liked, what he did, and he saw what he didn't like. And he came up with a very successful business f- formula that he has now. Mm-hmm. So you have to be willing to experiment. You have to be always trying to you know gain skills in your twenties, mm-hmm. etc. With it, with a degree of of a framework for your life, so you know more or less what you want. That's what I advocate. Mm-hmm. I think if you're too rigid about things, if you say, by 26, I'm going to make $5 million, I'm going to start this business, and I know a lot of millennials like that, mm-hmm. I think you're going to burn out, and I think you're not using your your right. brain in the right, right way. And
0: we're 26 years old, so that's perfect advice for us. No, I, I agree. Are <laughs> um, you both? Both twenty six, yeah. Both twenty six. Well, he's turning twenty seven a couple of days before your birthday. Wow! And I'm on May twenty eighth. Wow, so, your kids. Yeah, we're we're babies. Yeah, yeah just but look I, like we're not yeah, twenty six. Definitely resonates <laughs> with me
2: though, as far as where I am in in my life in terms of you know, it's interesting. I, you know, we always talk about, well, we have talked about it on, on previous uh, episodes, which is this kind of um, concept from Barry Schwartz's book, Paradox of Choice, which is the maximizer versus the satisfizer, and the folks who are kind of always chasing that next thing and. You know, I, I, I kind of tie it to like fulfillment too. It's like, well, you could be doing something where you might be making a good amount of money, but you don't feel fulfilled. Should you just stop there or should you keep exploring and keep, you know, trying to find that, I don't know, solution to being fulfilled, right? But you mentioned at a young age, you felt like you were meant to be a writer. How, how, did, how did you come to that realization?
1: Well, I I maintain in my book, Mastery, that usually you know when you're very young, before parents and teachers and peers start filling you with all of their ideas, you have a sense of what you were meant to do, what you love, what you're inclined to. And I loved books, and I loved writing. I was always very, very quite good at it. But I just had a thing with words. Um, It was just words themselves, like the sounds of words. I love playing word games, so I was attracted to words. So um, it felt natural, Mm -hmm. you know, that that someday I would be a writer. Particularly also, I love literature, so I thought maybe at some point I'd write novels. But whatever it is for you when you're young, for me it was words. For some people, it's like movement and like sports and moving Mm -hmm. their bodies. And for other people, it's like mathematical patterns. For other people, it's like working with other people they're more socially oriented, but you kind of have a sense when you're really young what really draws you, what really attracts you. And for me, it was it was always it was always words and writing. Robert, mm-hmm. well, kind of taking it back, there's something that you mentioned, and I know I know we've talked
0: about it offline about the entertainment industry, and that's really kind of what inspired the 48 Laws of Power because you started seeing these different power dynamics and power plays and. How people were essentially fucking each other over at times and, you know, to to get ahead. There was a director you said that you worked with, and I think this was like a story that you might have mentioned when we first met. What was, I want to hear that story again because I really want to hear about what that power play was and how it worked out. Because I know that a lot of people that work for somebody or that work in a team, I'm sure they've seen something like that where they're put in a position to fail because the person that's putting in them, Putting them in that position wanted to take the credit for it down the line. I know there was a story, so I'll let you kind of
1: tell it. Well, basically, he's a film director whose name I shan't mention, um, but uh, he he had actually only directed one film before, and he he was trying to get his fin- do another project, and his first one hadn't been very successful. Um, so he had written the screenplay, and a producer. Got on board and said, we're going to make this film. He right. liked it. You were a
0: writer on this project? I was his
1: assistant. Got it. Just an assistant. I wasn't... Got I it. did write for him. I did yeah. write bits of his dialogue, yeah. which is law number seven. Always get other people to do the work, but take the credit for <laughs> it. He, I did a lot of work writing, and he would always take credit for it. That's another story. Yeah. Anyway, um, and so he wanted to be the director of this film, but the producer thought, you know, you don't have enough experience mm-hmm. Um, we need to bring in somebody else, right? And so he very cleverly agreed. He said, yes, okay, you're right. He was very kind of very clever person. And he said, all right, let me look. I'm going to hire somebody who I think will do the perfect job for this film. So he found uh, someone who was young, who was a writer who had directed one other film and who was maybe on the up, so it wasn't like a very experienced director, but he sold this guy to the producer saying, he's hot, we can get him when he's just starting out, he's got the perfect vision for this film. But in the truth, he knew that this kid would never succeed in right. this film. right? And he was going to maybe help make sure that he wasn't going to succeed at it. But he was in over his head. The project involved several locations. It had kind of young stars This person had never really, wasn't known for directing actors before. So the person I worked for could foresee all these problems on the project. And so they hired him. And slowly but surely, within a week, it was a disaster. He was falling way behind schedule. He was getting very emotional. He was yelling a lot. And so the producer had to intervene and fire him. And there was only so much time left before they had... The actor still under contract. So the man I worked for said, look, I can rescue this project. Just let me come in. I can save the whole thing. And he did. And he directed it. And, you know, it wasn't a, a huge success, right. but he went on to direct many other things. But he had set the whole thing up. Hmm. I mean, he could have failed. This kid could right. have come through and been a good director. Right. But he knew the odds were the odds against were, it yeah. and, and you saw so, all of this just happening yeah i like, saw all this yeah. did you and in I,
0: that moment know this was happening or this is something that you look back in time and think this is
1: literally what happened i kind of had a sense that this is what was happening at the time you know because i knew how badly he wanted to direct right. them and how upset he was mm-hmm. about this mm-hmm. but the point was um he could have gotten angry and he could have said you know fuck you i I don't care about who if you if if I can't direct it, no one's going right. to direct it' get rid of the project. He could have done a number of things, but he chose this very clever solution, which was to let somebody else do the job and fail Interesting. and then he would come in and rescue it. but what impressed me at the time was um that he nobody suspected this; he always presented himself as a really nice considerate person always caring about people's careers he was actually a- acting that way about this young writer who was directing the film mm-hmm. and in fact this kind of ruined this young man's career because yeah. he had he had this this terrible it was attached to, to right. his name so i was always sort of impressed with the idea that in hollywood i saw many other things besides that um i was always impressed that people who were really successful they It seemed like they were about, you know, creating a good film and everything, but it was really about power, and it was really about how you could put yourself in a position to control the situation Mm -hmm. without other people suspecting that you were doing so. And, you know, it's like a court. I talk in the books about old courts with kings Mm -hmm. and queens and courtiers, and everyone has to suck up to the king. In Hollywood, it's just a massive game of suck up, you know? And everyone is, oh, your film is terrific, you're yeah, lovely, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're wonderful. You're yeah, right? the best
0: producer I've ever seen. You're so talented.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, you have to play this other game where you have to be extremely right. clever and very manipulative. And those are the ones who make it to the top. So that was the main inspiration for the 48 Loss of
2: Power. So, so you see the situation unfold and, and it kind of you know, sparks this thing in your, in your mind where it's like there's something going on here, there's a power play. How, how does it become a full-on... Like book, like how, how do you what do you like what are the next steps that you took to you know kind of dive deeper and and kind of get all the, like the forty eight laws and all these examples from history and all that stuff?
1: Well, um, I've been reading books my whole life, so I read a lot of history. I have certain periods that really fascinate me, <clears throat> like the Renaissance Italy, the Borgias and Machiavelli, and all the incredible intrigue and power games going on. But I was also reading about Louis the Fourteenth and French Revolution, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Napoleon. And so when I was going prior to working in Hollywood, um, my wife and I counted, I probably had 50 to 80 different jobs. Wow. You know, I was always trying different things. Yeah. So I had seen all kinds of power games being played in offices of all different kinds. Um, and so uh to me, the past and the present kind of fused together. When I saw what this director had done, it reminded me of things that were going on in Renaissance Italy, yeah. where a king would call in a condo, condottiere, a, a mercenary soldier, to fight his battles, knowing that, that this guy would, would probably fail and that he and that was good because he wanted to get rid of him mm-hmm. he was getting too powerful. Mm-hmm. How do I get rid of this man who's too powerful? I hire him, I keep him close, and I ensure that he's going to fail in this battle and he's going to get killed. That's how I get rid of him. You know. So I'm, I'm reading that and I'm seeing this in Hollywood and I'm going, man, it's the same thing. Right. This hasn't changed for thousands of years. It's the same kind of game. So I had all this material in my head and I remember once I was living in Paris, working at that hotel, and the owner of the hotel, who was a really good, good friend of mine, told me the story of a man who uh, was Louis the finance minister, hmm. and he was everyone loved this finance minister, and he wanted to ingratiate himself with the king, King Louis the Fourteenth, so he had this incredible party at his chate- wasn't this in the book? Yeah, yeah, at his chateau. And uh, and it was everyone was, this was the most amazing mm-hmm. party they'd ever seen with fireworks and theater and all this. And the next day, Louis the Fourteenth had him arrested and thrown into prison for the rest of his life. And that you know, that was turned into law number one, never outshine mm-hmm. the master. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, in my own life, I had done the same problem. I had tried too hard to impress a boss with everything that I knew, and I got fired. So to me, stories from the past, are not just history and not just stories from the past. There's something living and alive. And there are examples and lessons that I had learned and that I'd seen others imp- um, apply. So the whole the whole book was inside of me. I just needed someone to believe in mm-hmm. it and to just yeah. work like a, like a dog and, and get it done. And were you
2: worried at all about sort of the social validation of everything you're putting in because you were kind of more coming from an academic standpoint, as opposed to like maybe like a scientific standpoint of like psychology and sociology and all these things where, um, you know, although you may have seen those things in books, like, um, it's kind of, you know, like I'm trying to think of like, if I was in that position, how I would be thinking or feeling if I was going to write a book from that perspective. Um, and like, I know, I, I love how you in, in the 48 laws of power, um, kind of uh, present like the counter argument, if you will, of of the law. Um, but I guess, wh- what was the reaction and was it what you expected it would be?
1: Well, you know, we live in a world where people are just so obsessed and fixated on credentials, right. on titles. Right. So if I had been a professor of psychology yeah. at State University of New York, whatever, I'd have all this cachet mm-hmm. and people would, but no, I'm not. But the but the point is the book came out 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, and people really connected to it. It spoke to them about something true as opposed to all the books by professors and people who write books about power that nobody could give a damn about
2: right, because right. they're
1: boring because they have no connection to life. Right. I had a real visceral connection to life. I'm not sitting here studying life in an office in politics. I that's fucking cool. lived it. Yeah. I saw all this shit. Yeah. I saw how unhappy and frustrated I was. Mm-hmm. I saw all the power games being played. It wasn't an academic study. It wasn't some sort of scientific research paper that I wrote. It was my living reality. It's the living reality of everyone out there. I wrote the book through with my own blood, mm-hmm. and that's why people connect to it. Mm-hmm. I don't ever talk about myself in that book. It's all about history and it's right. kind of distance. But I'm in that very deeply. Mm-hmm. And it's all of my experiences. And I hate the kind of hypocrisy that goes on yeah. in in the world where people pretend that they're not interested in power. That's the last thing they want to do. So I had a kind of a gleeful desire to expose all that. And I made it a little bit extreme. And I was told along the way, uh, my publishers originally thought, mm, Robert, I don't know, we're, we like this book, but we want you to change it. It's not exactly what we think is going to work. Which is exactly what you hated, was yeah. telling, having people tell you what to do. <laughs> yeah, and the man that I worked with, who I really like and respect, he was great. We both agreed, fuck them. You yeah. take the book as it is, or we'll go somewhere else, right. and we'll get the money that we right. want. And we played that game, which is right. a very powerful negotiating technique I always right. tell people to right. use. Which is what? Which is be willing to walk away mm-hmm. and mean it. So, that is the strongest negotiation. And be okay position. to lose if necessary. Yeah. But you mean it. You're not doing it just as a ploy. You are willing. You have a backup plan. So, you're not just faking it. When you go into the meeting, people know it. It's, they sense it. It's real. So, they kept the book. And, you know, it was a gamble. It's a strange book. It looks strange. Mm-hmm. It's got colors on the sides, yeah. it's got all these shapes. No one's ever seen a book like that. It could have been a massive failure. And I accepted that. And he accepted that. Mm-hmm. But it turned out into something else, you know, which I wouldn't be here if it had <laughs> Right, right.
0: And I mean, Pat and I have both read the book, obviously, you know, a couple of times and we've referred back to several laws multiple times. And I think you put it perfectly. I think there are times where, where, you know, as a reader, you're like, damn, that's a little extreme. Like, you know, but it's cool because it evokes that emotion and you get to really think about it. And I think it's interesting because everybody has a different perspective or they relate to it. You know, just taking law one, for example, because we discussed it. You know, everybody's had a boss, hopefully. You know, I, I think it's, I think somebody should always have a boss just to see what it's like. And like you said, you're always trying to impress that person. But taking that law, I'm curious, do you I don't know if I'm phrasing this correctly, but do you agree with the 48 laws of power? Like, do you think that every power should be followed or is it more so an observation
1: of – do you agree that there are that there should be earthquakes in the planet? Do you agree that there should be rain? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you agree that the sun should shine? These are just facts. Facts, right. Whether I agree with them is completely irrelevant. Right, but that's this is the that's world I'm asking you, though. So to take the most extreme chapter in the book that people always complain about, crush your enemy totally. Mm. Oh, my God, what an evil, horrible. <laughs> right. I make it very clear in that chapter, it's not about individuals, right? right? It's more about... Politics or business, right? But look at how every goddamn business in this country operates. Yeah, it's all competition, particularly in Silicon Valley. No, it's about monopolizing the field. Look at Amazon and the success they've had. Right, Google. Same. Look at Google. Look at Facebook. Mm -hmm. It's all monopolizing. We have to crush them totally. Right. In the nineties, Microsoft was facing Netscape, and they put them completely out of business. They just didn't try and hurt them they just got rid of them right. no one knows an escape anymore mm-hmm. so that's a dynamic in business so crush your enemy totally is not some exaggerated evil maniacal law that i'm using to kind of you know play to the audience right. and, and and fool them it's the reality in right. business and that's what i'm asking you're not telling donald people. trump in in politics right. and look what he did yeah. with the republican right. party this is the world we deal with right so you're telling me do i advocate that that you know My cat, you know, kills birds. He can't help it. This is the world that we live in.
0: Right. But again, just kind of taking that a little further, like my question is you're not necessarily saying crush your enemy. You're just saying that that is the reality of what is happening. Right? Yeah. But on a grander level, do you think that things like crushing your enemy, things like, you know, not being better than your boss and your master, do you think that as humans, as you know global citizens that this helps us progress does it help us move forward when all these power dynamics are at play and that we're constantly manipulating one another i I understand it's the facts but is it a good thing that these dynamics
1: exist well this is what i talk about in my new book the laws of human nature Mm -hmm. a lot of this is who we are as human beings a lot of these game playing go back people who have studied chimpanzees and there's one very famous man he calls them the machiavellian animal hmm. chimpanzees are extremely machiavellian so there's something in our dna that has that has that keeps re- repeating these patterns and i'm trying to make the point in the laws of human nature that instead of fighting and moralizing and complaining and saying oh why can't we all just be like mother teresa why don't we just deal with the fact that this is who we are? Right. Why don't we finally look in the mirror and say right. that we have these tendencies, that we want power, that we're not these, these saintly little angels walking mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. who just want to do the best for other people? Yes, there is a lot of that, and it's a very important part of right. human nature. But there's this other element, and a, lo- a big part of the 48 laws of power was defensive. I myself was, a, a, by nature, a somewhat innocent person. I'm not Machiavellian by nature. And, and people
0: think that you are because of 48 laws of power.
1: Yeah. <laughs> of course, saying that you're not Machiavellian <laughs> is often the most Machiavellian <laughs> right. thing you can do. But in this case, I'm being sincere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you think that, you know. No, no, no. Mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, all no. right. Well, maybe, okay. But, um, but I have heard that that's
0: why I mean I'm I'm being honest I'm very yeah. I'm a very open person I think people because once they read the 48 laws of power and that's why I asked that question is that they, they get the perception that you are an advocate of those and are telling people to do that and I think perhaps it's because it's I think the laws of human nature is almost a perfect follow up to the 48 laws of power because it explains kind of like you know like we for, we know that we have DNA and we have you know the chromosomes and I think that the laws of human nature explains why our DNA is the way that it is, right? So I think that's what I like about the two different books and how they complement one another. But I, I want—I'm I'm, curious—are there examples of folks that have reached out to you and said, you know, one of your books has impacted you so deeply, or whether it's Forty Eight Laws or The Art of Seduction or the Fiftieth Law, even, or Forty—you know—Laws of Human Nature. Have there been any example, like anecdotal examples, of ways folks have really lived the books?
1: Well, I get a lot of email and, um, you know, uh, people who write me stories about how the books have changed them and have they helped them sometimes. Maybe about 5% I get the opposite or people really complaining that someone used the book on them, (laughs) which is not very nice for me to hear, but I have to acknowledge that that does happen. Um, But the stories are usually, like what I was trying to say earlier, like from my perspective, of people who are a little innocent. Mm. They go into a job... Or they go into some kind of line of work and they're full of themselves and they're full of their enthusiasm and they're young and they're excited and they get screwed massively because they weren't paying attention because they were innocent because there are people out there who are very manipulative. I say maybe one out of 20 people, I don't know the, and I'm just making that mm-hmm. up is truly, really Machiavellian and aggressive and domineering. And all it takes is, if it's, if it's 5%, all it takes is, in a, in a group, there will always be one. And that person will generally rise to the top. And that person will be amoral and ruthless. And a lot of people like myself don't believe don't na- naturally believe that because we were raised, we had a nice childhood, right. et cetera. So I got a lot of emails from people saying, this book really opened my eyes. Now I understand what happened. Now I understood that I never outshone the master. Mm. Now I understand that I talk too much, always say less than necessary. Now I know that I, my reputation, I didn't guard it and now I'm in trouble. Now, now I know that I shouldn't get involved with someone who's like a drama queen or drama, drama person because they infect you with their negative energy. In retrospect, I had this made these terrible mistakes and your book made me realize mm. what actually happened so I won't repeat them. Mm-hmm. So I get a lot of that. I get stories of guys who've used the art of seduction and women, you know, to mm-hmm. successfully seduce. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I get letters from people in American prisons. My books are very popular in prisons. Isn't it banned? Or? In a lot of prisons <laughs> it's been banned, saying, you know, the book helped me deal with perhaps the most primal power situation on the planet yeah. and protect myself. Yeah. So it's a mix. It's a grab bag. I don't have any it's supremely sexy one anecdote to tell you. It's right. mostly about... It opened my my eyes up to what's really going on in the office right. or wherever I'm dealing with. It.
2: Have you have you seen anyone? I mean, obviously in history, but more so in like in your lifetime, that perhaps you know uh, that that you feel like has been super powerful in in their field, and y- you know you couldn't help but think like, I wonder if they read my book because they're kind of playing it the way um, I, I saw it.
1: Well, people always say, "Well, do you think Trump has read the book?" I don't think he has. Cause I don't think it? he's he, read. He doesn't read. Yeah. Really. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So Apparently, mean, he writes
2: books but doesn't read them. So. I mean, he doesn't write them. Yeah, he, has he, a ghost write he doesn't write it. his tweets either. We know that. <laughs> um, no, I think he writes his actually, tweets. He writes his tweets. Yeah, writes his so. tweets. <laughs> oh, <right.
0: laughs> I don't know if he writes his books, but the tweets for sure. Yeah.
1: Um, You know, I don't really know. Um, You know, I wonder like, if Phil Jackson had read them, Um, people like that. But um, generally, I have met. Famous politicians around the world who brought me in to talk to me, who've ad- who have read the book and have used it. I heard Fidel Castro read Fidel it. Fidel Castro, he doesn't need the book. He was already in his <laughs> 70s or something when yeah. he, when he yeah. got the copy of the book. Yeah, um, He's like, oh, no wonder I am like this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it confirmed. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, it was interesting because my books are very popular with hip-hop artists. because, And that came early on because... It came out in a period when a lot of rappers were trying to start their own business. Yeah, they were kind of getting away from the old model where the black artists were traditionally very exploited, and so um, they th- found my book very helpful. And that's how you know I read Jay Z had read the book and it helped him. And I actually heard
2: it in a Drake song maybe ten years ago, one of uh-huh. his like not famous songs. Yeah. He said something about. Uh, so read 48 Laws if you've never read it because that is one of the main reasons I'm level-headed. Oh. I was like, what is this? So yeah. I had to search it and I, that's when I bought the book. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. So Drake influenced him to buy your book. Yeah. Wow, I'll have <laughs> yeah. to thank him. That's yeah. good. I yeah. Yeah. I'm a big hip hop fan too. So oh, okay. I know you had a book with 50 Cent too, right? So 50, 50
1: was the one that you know he he um, you know contacted me and we ended up having a relationship and I wrote a book with him.
0: Do you call him 50 or Curtis? I call him 50. Okay, there you go. Okay. <laughs> and I don't really, and I don't call him Fiddy. Yeah, no, no, it's too much.
1: Yeah, um, but he was a living, breathing example of the Forty Eight Laws of Power. I didn't know before. I didn't really know his story beforehand. But when I was about to meet him, I read from Pieces to Wait his first kind of autobiography, and I go, "Wow, this guy's a living, breathing example of the Forty Eight Laws." And then when I met him, he explained to me how much the book impacted mm-hmm. him. I know, so,
0: yeah. I know you had a question on, on the way here where you were, like, about how 48 became, like, so popular, like, almost immediately. Yeah, like, yeah. Like um, I'm kind of
2: just curious, like, was it just immediately adopted as, like, um you know, just kind of quickly became a bestseller and it was, like, a word of mouth type of thing? Or, like, how, how did you kind of see this whole thing unravel as far as the popularity of the book?
1: Well, um, it's a kind of an interesting example. I mean, I don't know if it's replicable for other people, yeah. but... Um, we didn't have a lot of publicity. My books don't get a lot of publicity. I mean, the 48 Laws actually probably got most of any book <laughs> initially. I was on the O'Reilly Factor twice back when that still existed. I was in USA Today back in the day when people still read newspapers. Yeah. you know, And I had some yeah. television and things. But really not that much. The mainstream media pretty much ignored it. The Internet didn't exist. The book made it because of word of mouth because it was so weird and so strong, Mm -hmm. and so Mm in-your-face, and so kind of, wow, what do I do with this? That it became like a cult thing. People were talking about it, and it passed around. And then started, you know, when hip-hop artists started rapping about it or talking about it in interviews, it kind of snowballed. I didn't really have to do very much for it. But it's because I made the book authentic, Mm -hmm. and I, I didn't try and weasel my way with power and say, oh, You know, maybe it's really not like this. You should try and be a nicer person like how most books are. I gave it to you straight. I think it kind of connected with people. And you didn't really name drop,
0: like, specific people (laughs) in time where they could have promoted it for you, you know. As people who had been long gone.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and we learned, like, in marketing, like, the significance of numbers. And you called it the 48 laws of power, not, you know, the 50 laws of power, like, rounded it up. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Like, you know, you learn about pricing in the market of, like… $2.99 Two ninety nine versus three dollars sure. right. Like so and then and then and then obviously the uh cover is really kind of in your face. You said the color, you know It's like how, Armenian flag I, how did that it's red, flu, orange. Yeah. Um how did that come about? Was that kinda of just by you know was there like a methodology behind that or was it just kinda of like behind you know, which part? The, the 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 how the book is designed or the four. Well, that was,
1: that, that was uh um, well, originally the, I had fifty two laws, okay, and I was told and I agreed that fifty two wouldn't be a good title, that forty eight <laughs> was better huh. so part of one thing a lesson there for people is, don't get so full of yourself that you can't listen to other people with with their good advice. so I've always incorporated you know I don't necessarily give them credit, but um, <laughs> people say this is what your title should be. this is you know I listen to people, I listen mm-hmm. to the audience, I listen to their response. So whenever I'm writing a new book, I'm always very sensitive to what people liked in the last book. So you pay attention to what people tell you. Um, so I then changed the book to 48. I, I made certain chapters kind of double and, and whittled it down because it was a much more powerful number. But um, the design of the book, I worked with that man that I talked about and I met in Italy. Mm-hmm. He's a book packager, which basically means he packages the whole product he designs it etc and he's dutch and he's extremely visual he's a very good artist his father was a famous artist he's just very visual smart person and so um he designed the cover and he thought he saw that cover as sort of like a flag not the armenian flag but like a flag in renaissance italy like the flag of florence Mm -hmm. right and so he thought that was a very iconic, and I loved it, and I went with that. The inside of the book is a little bit more my work. I mean, he did really great layout, but the the little bits in there of of the shapes with the different quotes, it's kind of my idea. Mm-hmm. And the things on the side, that's my idea, and he put that in colors. So we worked together. It was very collaborative, but he has got he's a very visual person. And, you know, a point in the 48 Laws of Power is power we humans are very visual oriented. We're oriented towards spectacle. We're very, you know, we see things. And if you want to, it's very powerful to not have to say something, but to create a symbol that, that excites people and seduces them. So, what, if you're going to say that, you know, the academic approach would be to just say that and write a boring, stupid book about marketing. Yeah. We made it literally on the page, mm-hmm. we made the cover a spectacle. We made the inside of the book like a visual treat for people. So that was sort of the idea behind it. I so subtleties,
2: yeah. So subtleties that stand out and like kind of people can just like take it for what it is as opposed to directly telling them this is what it is. Yeah. And well, we had,
1: you know, chapters in there about create compelling spectacles and play to people's fantasies. But we wanted to also just literally do that with the book itself. Yeah. Has anybody done a case study of any of your books, especially 48 Laws?
0: In terms of how powerful that word of mouth marketing became, I mean, it's it's very rare even in today's world because obviously there's social media, but it's very rare to see something like a book gain that much traction. I mean, it's it became almost like a movie where people were like, "You gotta go see that movie," you know, "You gotta go see that film." Spend two hours and go see it. I mean, I know that almost all of my male friends have read or own 48 Laws of Power. <sighs> And so, like, you know, when I first bought it and I posted on Twitter or something, everyone's like, oh, man, you're going to love it. Like, and it was all guys, all guys. And so, it, w- it was incredible, like, you know, and that's why I was wondering, have, has, have business schools done case studies of, like, Well, I've had business that.
1: schools have used the book in their classes. Right. I've been invited and I've given talks. Mm-hmm. It was Bentley University, USC, um, in the Marshall School. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah, that's where Pat went, yeah. Okay, there was a professor there. I can't remember her name. She loved the book, and she taught it in her class. Um, So there have been people who have used it in their business class. I wish Mm -hmm. I took that professor. I didn't didn't have (laughs) it. I wish I took that professor. You know who I'm talking about?
2: No, no.
1: Was it like an entrepreneurship class? I'm not sure. If you said her name, I'd remember it.
2: So – Speaking
0: of business and, you know, business schools and education, I know that you've taken obviously a lot of the lessons that you've learned while writing these books and, you know, while being inspired to actually go ahead and work with business leaders and businesses. You know, I know you like have slowed down more recently, but earlier on you were working with a lot of companies. What are some of the companies that you were working with or some of the leaders that you were working with?
1: Well, I'm not allowed to speak about them. I have confidentiality okay. agreements that I very uh, religiously ascribe mm-hmm. to. But you obviously, the most important one, yeah. is American Apparel. Yeah. Um, and the only reason I can mention that is because I was put on the board of directors right. there. I started as a consultant with him, and then I worked for with him with Dove. With Dove, I've worked with other business leaders in foreign countries, in the United Arab Emirates, in France, and in Italy. I've worked with a lot of athletes. The football player was here before. I, I've consulted with him. I've consulted with coaches of teams. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a coach in the G League right now who I think is going to make it to the NBA. Oh, nice. I've kind of so, but I can't mention them yeah. because yeah. it's just I try and keep things right. very discreet. Right. But with Dove Charney, um, he was a huge fan of the 48 Laws of Power. It was like his Bible, and he had a big stack of it in his office and in his home. And when people come visit, he would give it to them as a Mm -hmm. gift. He gave out hundreds of copies. And so um, he's really a very charming, charismatic man with a dark side. And um, we became friends, and I liked him. This was before American Apparel had exploded. It was still quite a small company. But I was so impressed with what this one man had created. If you ever went and saw his factory in downtown LA, you was whoa. Yeah, I'm sure. This is amazing what this man has built here. (sighs) They don't have factories like that anymore. So I was kind of taken in, and rightfully so. He's he's, he's a genius Mm -hmm. in his own way. So I was brought on the board of directors, and it was a very overwhelming experience because I don't have a business background. I couldn't tell you EBITDA from from anything else. I don't even know what EBITDA is. I still don't know what EBITDA is. Earnings
2: before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Well, everyone keeps talking about this. <laughs> you know, or
1: let, let, let's see your deck. Yeah. Or, yeah, or yeah. Blah, 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 blah. what the yeah, hell is all that, it? It's all, all, it's all gibberish to yeah. me. Yeah. And it remained gibberish. So I was a bit intimidated. But I quickly got rid of my intimidation because I realized that business leaders – are often very good at the technical aspect. Right. They know EBITDA, left, right, and center. Mm-hmm. They know all of the finance elements. But they're not good at strategy, and they're not good at a brand, and they don't know their audience, and they don't know, not all of them, but a lot of them don't. Mm-hmm. Dove knew his audience, and he was, he was smart, but he had a blind spot. Like a lot of int- entrepreneurs, like an Elon Musk, they come to think that they're infallible. Right. That he can take this brand that he started that was T-shirts, and that he can make a fashion line out of it. That he can start having designer jeans, which he started to do uh, around 2007, just when we went public. And then the crash occurred in 08. And we were bleeding money and we were heavily in debt. And these crises brought out the worst part of him. So you often see the worth of a leader when a crisis hits. Because they can't fake it anymore. They have to show whether you know they really had a vision. Mm-hmm. And he kind of crumbled under the pressure and we were bleeding money left, right, and center. And, you know, I'm not to say that I was this great genius, but I had a vision for how we could change course, for how we could go back to the roots of who we were at a T-shirt company and kind of expand our base and stick with the market that we had, which was mostly young women in their early 20s, mm-hmm. et cetera, and how the company could grow internally, how we could have a, a more cohesive spirit, he never listened to me. I, he he was very nice, but, and this happens a lot with leaders mm-hmm. that I consult with. They want to hear an outside opinion. They get the outside opinion and then they ignore it because it's not what they want to hear. So that's to me the difference between a successful leader, a successful entrepreneur, and one who will end up hitting a wall because they're too stubborn. They think they know everything, mm-hmm. you know, so... That's why I said about my own books. I try and make sure that I always listen to other people. Mm-hmm. But um, it became, became very dramatic because I think it was 2014 or so that we decided we were going to fire Dove.
0: Which is who was the founder of American Barrel. Yeah, it was
1: very strong and for me, very emotional experience because he was my friend. Yeah. And me and this other board member, we were kind of the impetus behind it. We tried to get him to save himself at the last minute, but he refused to listen to us. And then we had to be extremely Machiavellian because we had to disguise, but we would conceal our intentions. If Dove ever got wind of the fact that we were intending to fire him, he would have, got, he would have destroyed us. We would have never been able to do it. Right. So we had to be very secretive and we had to do a kind of a conspiracy. Then mm-hmm. we succeeded and we fired him. But the end of the story is a, is, is, is a tragedy because um, a, a hedge fund came in and offered all this money to help pay for the massive amount of debt, and I kept telling the other board members, "This, this, this hedge fund is—they don't know anything about apparel. They don't know the fashion business. They don't know what young women are buying these days. How, how are they going to? They're bringing in money, but they're going to destroy the brand. It's, it's almost better that we let Dove bring the ship all the way. Let, let him sink the Titanic." Mm-hmm. Then bring in this other company, and that's what ended up what happening. Mm-hmm. So it was a real eye opener for me about business. I learned that a lot of business leaders are not creative; they're very conventional. They do what other people have done. They try the strange strategies over and over again. They can become very if they're this the founder of a company. They think they know everything. They're not going to listen on, on, and on. And um, so I, I, I'm not, you know, I, I lost my intimidation factor when i saw yeah that there's a lot of incompetence in right. the business world
2: and for those business leaders now that might be listening or um yeah might be listening uh how could they be more like that be more strategic or kind of let's say they have a finance background or more of like an account accounting background or numbered background but they're not they know themselves and they're not as strategic or if they feel not they're not as strategic how can they like, is it reading? Is it reading books? Is it read know, my besides, books. besides reading your books, I know that part. Yeah, read besides, Robert Greene's books. Yeah. You can buy them on Amazon. Or yeah. What yeah. well, would you say? What other resources or where should they look to?
1: Well, it's, it's not just reading. It's a mindset. So we'll break it down to something very simple. I like to keep things simple. Um, are you somebody who's willing to admit that you make mistakes? Are you somebody that's willing to admit that you need to learn more? You're maybe 35. You're brilliant. You have an MBA. You're the CFO of a great company that's doing well. But maybe you have blind spots. Maybe you don't understand people so well. Maybe you're not such a good manager, or maybe you have weaknesses. Are you willing to admit that? Do you want to learn? Do you want to perfect yourself, become better? Or are you someone that refuses to look at your blind spots? That's the line between a successful person and one who will hit a wall. Because when you're young... You can go pretty far with aggressive energy like an Elon Musk or like a Dub Charney. Yeah. But eventually the fact that you won't listen, that you're so full of yourself that you think you know everything, you're gonna you're gonna, you know, end up creating problems. Steve Jobs,
2: yourself. another great example of that.
1: Yeah, but he he's he's an example of someone who learned, who had some humility, yeah. mm-hmm. oddly enough. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. he had terrible series of failures. Mm-hmm. You know, the Lisa McIntosh he was fired in eighty-six or eighty-seven. Yeah. He went on to write and do the next, which was actually quite brilliant, but it was a total financial failure. Yeah. He had lots of failures. So when he was brought back, brought back onto Apple in like 98 or so, he had a degree of humility. Yeah. He understood that he had made mistakes. He still was an arrogant asshole, but he had learned that he had to be a better manager. He had to hire better people and that he had to do things differently. He knew he's what his
2: weaknesses ex- are and he found a way to fill fill those voids.
1: Yeah, he's yeah. an example of someone I think who is... A, who feels the the paradigm i'm trying to create of a successful leader success is measured by time you can be successful in four year period anybody can just by being aggressive and pushing your way there but i want to measure it by 10 20 30 years can you come back and found a second company a third company can you take your company and rebrand it and and move into the present into the future like genie bus isn't mm-hmm. doing are you someone who can adapt? Mm-hmm. Adaptability is perhaps the most important quality in a leader. Are you so stubborn that you you tried a strategy that worked five years ago and you just keep repeating it over and right. over again? Because that's, you're not creative. That's human stupidity to always repeat the same things because it worked once. No, are you willing to learn from in the present, adapt what you're doing, see that things are changing, you know, a new generation is coming up, um, I don't know millennials very well. I can hardly know Generation Z or whatever they call them. So I don't have the arrogance that I understand them. I use people like Ryan Holiday and people who work mm-hmm. for me to give me entree. And to under- I'm, I, I'm humble. I understand. I have weaknesses that I don't know a lot. Yeah. But sometimes my books that, you know, when I'm writing it, I'm not getting the right answer. My book sucks. I have to redo it. Can you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I am imperfect? I need to change. That's more important than all the fucking books you're going to read mm-hmm. in this life because you can read books up up the wazoo. Yeah. You can bring in consultants like me $5,000 a day and it won't mean it or shit. buy everyone's ebook on Instagram. Yeah, it won't mean shit because you're not willing to change. Yeah. You think that you're perfect. Why do I need You don't say that to yourself. You think that you're willing to change, but really deep down you're not. Mm -hmm. Robert are there examples
0: of people that you've worked with or haven't worked with but you know know that you can say are successful business leaders you know they recognize their their weaknesses they you know fill in the voids they
1: constantly are learning constantly innovating is there somebody like that that exists? Well I think I mentioned at the talk I think like Reed Hastings is an example of that. Um, I read an article a while ago about the guy who's the CEO of Best Buy. I can't remember his name. <clears throat> he's very good. He uh, he understands. Yeah. I look at Warren Buffett as kind of the ultimate example. I kind of wanted to go into him a bit in my last book. He's obviously older, and you know, mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. I don't have know you ever how, met him? No, I'd like to. Yeah, um, he's you know kind of a classic example of a lot of things I talk about. He's very flexible. He's having some problems now with his business; they're not doing so well. But over an incredibly long period, there's nobody else who's created as much wealth yeah. as Warren Hathaway's Buffett. Crazy, yeah. Um, there are a few other people. I, I, somebody Reed else. Reed can... Hastings was LinkedIn, right? Ne-
0: or Netflix. Netflix? Netflix. Yeah, that's Reed Hoffman. Reed Reed Hoffman is LinkedIn. There's yeah. so many reads.
2: Yeah. Reed Hastings is Netflix. Netflix, yeah. 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 Um.
1: You know, uh, I it's interesting. I I, I met him uh, recently because uh, Peter Thiel. Yep. Because he's he has these he brings in people to his office. Aren't they all part talk.
0: of the uh, PayPal Mafia? That was the Reed Hoffman.
1: Oh, that's Reed Hoffman. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting confused. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so many Reeds. Yeah. Um, well, he was he was with Elon Musk as well. Peter Thiel. PayPal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, yeah. A lot of those um, guys. <laughs> he's really. I mean, the whole trump thing is a little bit weird yeah. but he's a really brilliant clever man i've read his book Zero to One.
2: Peter, it's, thiel? It's peter thiel yeah,
1: yeah. I, I just like the fact that he's a, like a contrarian, contrarian yeah. yeah but he's a really smart business yeah. guy with a really good head on his yeah, I mean, head on him and he's always willing to learn and he's constantly reading books and he's always bringing in people to give him advice i also to, think he was
0: a big part of facebook success yes he on. was he was yeah. the first investor yeah
2: that's
1: right so
0: he's a pretty
2: smart dude um, I know it's hard to imagine this now, but going back, I know you said you studied classical studies in college, uh, and then after that, you had like some like eighty jobs or something. If you, if writing didn't work out, if if you wrote the forty laws of power and it was just a massive failure, what do you know? Like what other area you would have gone in? What you would have done? Yeah, I
1: would, I would be in a cemetery. Is what I would be. <laughs> That's where I would be. Right. Now. Really. I would be six feet under the ground. Yeah. Yeah. I. I, I I'm. You know. I. I desperately wanted to find what it was I was meant to do. Mm-hmm. And if somehow I had to go and work at Walmart or, you know, s- stay in Hollywood, I don't think I'd be around. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was like that kind of desperate for me yeah, sort of thing. So, um, and if the book hadn't been a success, God, I don't know what I would have done. I would have probably got back up on my feet and tried another form of mm-hmm. writing, it would have always been writing for me. Yeah, And when it wasn't like I was going to, oh, I better go back to law school or something.
0: Robert, I'm curious right now, you know, a lot of folks that are pats in my age and probably a little older. So like the millennials, but older millennials have probably heard of you or have read your books or have heard of your books. How do you now connect with down the line with the even younger generation, the early, like the younger millennials or Gen Z they're called now? You know, I don't even, I don't even know those folks, but. How do you connect with this new group of people that is living on their phones or is sitting behind their video games? Are not very much, you know, out there doing things like even when Pat and I were yeah. growing up, there was no iPhone. Computers were, you know, super early on, so we did play sports outside. We did our things.
2: Like, and
0: now it's different. I see. I see the difference with right. kids.
2: And to piggyback off of that, yeah. um, like since 19, writing the book in 1998, like how have you seen with just kind of the evolution of like humankind like the book kind of stay relevant and like i guess how does it play into like the next 20 years and 30 years which book 48 laws of power and and your other books
1: well um i try to keep the books kind of classic and timeless because i'm dealing with things that i think have to do with human nature but you're right there are changes going on yeah changes that i tried to address in the laws of human nature Mm -hmm. my whole point was the changes that are going on with technology etc are kind of bringing out the worst elements in human nature. They're already there. Our degree of of self-absorption is is part of our nature for various reasons that I explain in the book. Social media makes that worse. We are by nature. We have aggressive impulses. Social media allows that to be, to use our aggression in ways that aren't, that are kind of acceptable now. Mm -hmm. We're envious creatures. Social media is a vast kind of, you know, pot of stewing envy. So um, so I think the books will stay relevant because I'm trying to get underneath what's really motivating human behavior. But I don't I can't pretend that I understand millennials deeply. I read a lot about them. I'm empathetic. I'm not one of these older people that's always ragging on millennials and mm-hmm. saying, you know, you're pampered, blah, 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 blah. Entitled, yeah. entitled whining. People said the same thing about my generation when we yeah. were growing up. It's the same story. Right. But I can't pretend that I know your experience. Um, I, it's very different from mine, although we both grew up playing football on the streets, etc. Yeah. But people playing video games when they're young and not out there in the street, I have no hard for me to understand. Right. So I read. I try and get into their mindset. I talk to people like Ryan. I try to know young people so I can soak up their spirit. But I have my own limitations, and I'm aware of that. So I don't pretend that I really understand Generation Z or Gen Z because I don't really know anybody yet. We have some relatives, et cetera, Mm -hmm. that I... Mostly when I see young people and I meet them, I really pay attention because I'm trying to understand their spirit. And, you know, I also read books on statistics. And there was a great book about an article in The Atlantic several years ago about how iPhones are destroying young people. Mm -hmm and the levels of loneliness and suicide mm-hmm. and what's happening to them psychologically. So that gives me a little avenue to see sort of the changes that are going on. But a lot of learning in life and, and, and being successful is to admit that you don't know something. Right. So if I came in and said, God, I, I, I know what people are like nowadays. It's never changed. I'm this, Then I'm not open to actually saying, I don't know them. I need to learn. So I want to learn about what young people are going through because I know that I don't understand them at all. Absolutely. Well,
0: transitioning more into a more recent time of your life, I I know that it's been you've had some health challenges, and I -hmm. want to discuss how you know obviously that made you feel, but how you've moved forward from that with such an unexpected um, event in your life that you really didn't see coming as such a you know young healthy person.
1: Well, I had a stroke about eight and a half months ago, and uh, yeah, I was in pretty good shape. I, I exercise every day. Um, somebody who really depends on exercise to get rid of depression or to, you know, just keep me sane. And um, But I must say, uh, writing in my books is a very stressful process. I put so much energy and time into it that it probably isn't the best for my health and probably contributed to my stroke certainly raised my blood pressure, gave me cholesterol issues that I was trying to deal with. But, um, you know, so some of it I brought on myself by my style of living and how intensely I write a book. But that's all I know, you know, to ask me to relax and just write a kind of leisurely style and not sit there and and think about it day in and day. It's just not me. Um, So, you know, it, it happened and then, just before my last book came out, the laws of human nature. So it kind of really ruined a lot of things for me. I had plan. We had great plans for a book tour and all these events, which we couldn't do. So uh, and then I had to deal with just being kind of an invalid for so long. I still can't walk that well, but in the beginning, I couldn't hardly walk at all. I lost the left side of my body; became very weak. And you know, it's been up and down. I've had. I've been trying my hardest therapy i do three hours of physical therapy every day wow. i recently just bought a uh a, a recumbent bicycle i don't know if you've ever seen one of mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. You, you sit down like in a chair mm-hmm. and you, your legs are out oh. and you recycle oh yeah um just to get out of the house and to get a good aerobic exercise and mm-hmm. so i do every a lot of things but the progress is so slow and you have to be patient i'm not a patient person yeah. So I'm dealing with my own weaknesses and my own limitations right now. And I'm trying to overcome them. On the one hand, it's good because I'm forcing myself to do all this therapy. I'm in a hurry to get better. But on the other hand, I, it just gets sometimes so frustrating. You know, when it takes you 15 minutes to tie your shoes in the yeah, morning. Yeah. You know, you're like, ah.
0: It so, used to take me five seconds. Yeah. Huh? It used to take me five seconds. And now it's like the most challenging part of my day.
1: Yeah. 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 So, um, they have a thing where it's called restraint, rest, where to teach yourself how to use your, like, left arm. Mm-hmm. You force yourself to do everything with your left arm. And I'm trying to do that, but, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm just shaving this, where I'm trying to pick up everything with yeah. my left arm. It's, it's really um, humbling because, you, you know, you, you think of your body a certain way, and it's just not responding. I can't get my body to do certain mm-hmm. things. So it's a lesson in in patience and acceptance, right. which I haven't mastered, but I'm trying very hard.
0: That's something that perhaps you could write about in one yeah. of your next I was books. I Say, right? I wonder if yeah. it's inspired. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I know that you had a lot of plans for this book tour, and um, you know I'm sure you had a lot of plans, and still do. Are are there any recent projects that you're working on right now, even with you know your limit physical limitations? Because uh, I know your mind is still thousand percent there. What are some of the projects that you're working
1: on currently? Well, I'm putting a proposal for my next book together. This is probably my least kind of practical, you know, office mm-hmm. politics book. It's based a little bit on my own experience. with a kind of a near-death experience, which a stroke was. Mm-hmm. I nearly died. I nearly suffered irreparable brain damage. Um, so um, I have a chapter in the laws, in the laws of human nature about... Ex- dealing with the thought of your own mortality and the power that comes from that. And then in the end, I talk about the sublime and how you can turn the thought of your own death into something kind of great and powerful and how that kind of thought can change your whole consciousness Mm -hmm. about living. That's kind of the book that I'm I'm working on now because I think people feel like they're missing something in their lives. They're in search of something. Mm -hmm. And I feel like what's missing is a sense of kind of vitality and a sense of being alive and knowing what it means to be alive and to feel curiosity and excitement and wonder about the world we live in Mm -hmm. and wanting to learn. And so this is a book to kind of bring back that feeling to people. So, you know, that's sort of
2: what I'm working on. Is it,
0: is it going to be similar in nature to, for example, Simon Sinek's book about the why, like, you know, finding your purpose or is it more so man's search for meaning?
2: Yeah. Is it, is it more so deeper
1: than that? Um, well, I wouldn't know if it's deeper than that. Part of it is finding your purpose. It's, um, it's just about um, the need that people have to connect to something larger than their ego, larger than their self. Whether that's a cause that transcends you, that you feel you belong to, or whether it's a sense of connecting t- to life in general or to other people around you. Whatever. I feel like it's a need that religion used to supply people, but we live in very skeptical, non-religious times. And I think people suffer from that. It's a kind of, it's, I hate to use the word spiritual, but there's a kind of a suffering. There's something missing, a connection to something else in life besides just making a living. And I'm all for making a living, believe me. But um, So I don't know what other books it's like, I I try to make a book that's not like anything else out there. for sure. This might be a massive failure, I don't know, but I I feel like there's a need for it. And I kind of intuit the need when I'm writing a book. Mm -hmm. Like mastery, I sense there was a need for people to understand the learning process itself and how you become a master in your field. And human nature, I felt like there was something missing that people don't understand what makes other people Mm -hmm. tick, that we've lost our social skills and instincts so now i feel like i'm trying to reach something else it's also very personal because you know as i said i had a a near-death experience Mm -hmm. myself
2: it's like a business in and of itself right like you see a need and you have to sort of cater to that need right
1: yeah
0: so do you still continue to work with companies and businesses to help them strategize you know growth or whatever it may be
1: oh yeah yeah, I mean, when I'm writing a book, I kind of disappear for a while, but I'm definitely getting yeah. back into that now. Yeah. Is it something you enjoy doing, helping coach entrepreneurs or business leaders? It depends on on the person. I mean, I, I really enjoy getting in early on and, you know, opening people's eyes to the idea of strategy. Mm-hmm. Because I have a concept of strategy that's not what they think it is. Right. I'm trying to change their whole mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, when I write a book, I'm not just giving you facts and details. I want to literally change how you look at the world. So when I consult, I try and do that with, with the people I'm dealing with. Right. So I enjoy it if people are open and they're listening and I can sense that there's a newness and a freshness and we're creating something and I right. can help them. I, I don't enjoy it when when I'm asked to do something that I'm not necessarily right. very good at or they're, they're just mm-hmm. bringing me in right. as kind of sugarcoating Yeah.
0: I was thinking just kind of throughout this um, conversation even that we're having that the Forty Laws of Power has so many, you know, nuggets of just gold that is really timeless and applicable to however you want it to apply to your life. And one big thing today that I think, you know, the millennial and younger generation really cares about is, again, that visual aspect of it, right? Like, you know, being on Instagram or on YouTube or Facebook, but just watching, watching the content as opposed to reading what's in the book. Is there a way that the 48 Laws of Power comes to life in a more visual platform so that the younger generation can consume it as opposed to reading it? Because I know people just have no patience to read anymore.
1: Well, if you have no patience to read, you're not going to go very far in life. Yeah. You know, and if you're not going very far in life, I'm really not that interested in in what what you're doing. Right. But we are working on a television version of the 48 Laws Mm. of Power. I'm working with a... Hip hop artist, a Drake basically, mm-hmm. um, to develop this. We've signed a contract. We're working on whether it'll actually happen or not, I don't know. I'm also working with another showrunner for the art of seduction, perhaps as a television series. So that would be as far as I'm willing to go. I'm not going right. to do like a comic book version of the of course book not. or, yeah. you know, people mm-hmm. have taken the 48 laws and have done things on YouTube where they mm. try to make right. little stories and visual I have no problem with that. But really, you know, if you're not somebody who has the patience to read a book, if you have to have everything on Instagram, uh, I'm sorry, I don't have much sympathy for that. Yeah, I don't care what generation you grew up in. You have to just discover at some point the incredible value of reading and learning and getting ideas on your own, not having them fed to you, and right. having them forced into your brain by you know things on the screen mm-hmm. you have to sit there and read and analyze and think about your life i've had people write to me i remember um somebody wrote to me who worked at the dade county library in one of the poorest neighborhoods in miami and he said that 48 laws of power was the most checked out book in that library and he would see young black kids 10 11 12 13 reading the book who never looked at a book before and then after that they were like really interested in reading about history etcetera. etc that's the kind of thing that I really want to happen with my books, not, you know, people turning it into like a comic book. or.
0: I guess to more so wrap this up unless you had any other questions or if you had questions for us, Robert, if a 21-year-old, you know, kid, guy or girl came to you and saw you on the street and ran up to you and said, you know, hey, you know, I've heard of your book and I just want to ask you some advice. Like, you know, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I'm 21 years old. I'm graduating college soon. I don't, you know, I major in whatever I major in doesn't matter. I mean, I majored in political science, so you can't really get a job in political science after that. Um, What do you suggest I do? You know, do I go and work somewhere? Do I start my own thing, take a risk? Do I go travel a little bit? Do I go back to grad school? What is is your suggestion to them? Or what what does that conversation look like?
1: Well, I try and like, first of all, know them a little bit instead of giving them advice that's, that's kind of generalized. But I I think people, when you're 21, you should have a little bit of fun and a sense of adventure. So if you write books, you give advice that is so contrary to what people want, it's so painful and boring and arduous, they're never going to do it. Mm -hmm. I've learned that over the years. You have to give advice that people in some way want to hear. It may contain a little poison pill inside of of a change, but it also includes something that that they're excited about. So I want to get that young person excited and see the future in a positive way and not be so anxious a lot of young people are so anxious and mm-hmm. worried and already depressed and already wanting to like hurry up and get their life over with just relax this is the best time of your life believe me i know it was my best time of my life you're gonna have to enjoy yourself At the same time you can't just be wandering around aimlessly We live in a smorgasbord culture where you can try your hand at anything you like. You can go on the internet and learn this skill. You Mm -hmm, can mm -hmm. try that. I can, oh, I could write poetry. Oh, I could be a ballet star. Oh, I could be a football player. No. You have to, you're probably destined for one thing. You probably have one great skill, one unique thing you can contribute to life. How do you find that? Okay, so don't just wander aimlessly. Look at yourself and say, this is kind of, what really gets me going mm-hmm. really excites mm-hmm. me so if it had been you nurses when i met you when you were 21 you were then you graduated political science from usc i don't know i would have kind of had a conversation with you and see what made your eyes light up mm-hmm. and perhaps it was eventually doing this podcast mm-hmm. and and maybe you're now veering more towards that kind of life or whatever but you're trying different things out right. you're not just working yeah. at yeah yeah, okay. yeah both of us yeah Okay, so um, what excites you? What is like, you know, where could you see yourself in 10 years? Um, And it's not just, I like giving practical advice. I want people to make money. Mm -hmm. I want people to be comfortable because I know how important that can be when I didn't have money, how miserable I was. But on the other hand, you can be just as miserable With going, running into a job, going to law school because your parents told you Mm -hmm. and graduating with a law degree and practicing, you know, civil litigation or entertainment line, just being burnt out by the time you're 30. You know, those are both broken paths. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I want to see where your passion is, what what excites you, what lights up your eyes. I want you to have a sense of my life now is an adventure. I'm going on an apprenticeship in which for seven or eight years I'm going to try my hand at different things, and I'm going to have some fun, and I'm going to meet some interesting people. I might live here or there, but I'm also going to earn a living, et et cetera. And I'm going to develop some skills, and I have a general sense of direction. So to be 21 and have all your life ahead of you and have no sense of direction is actually going to make you miserable. Mm -hmm. You feel lost. And no one in this world is out there to guide you. You have to guide yourself. So I want you to have a sense of direction, but also a sense of adventure. When you're 27, it's changing a little bit now. Now it's like, okay, let's start focusing a little more deeply. You've had these five different jobs. What connects them? What are the skills? What did you learn? What excite? What did you love about these jobs? And what did you hate? All right, let's start making a plan and narrowing that a little bit. So by the time you're 30, you're ready to start a business. You're ready to do something that you you know is really you, mm-hmm. and, and that you'll blossom in. But those that would be kind of the way I would approach that. 21 year old
2: sounds like you understand millennials really well because <laughs> I mean that really resonates with me. I'm like in the midst of that discovery, so uh, uh-huh. you know I couldn't just help but like just listen to you. saying. Yeah. Yeah. What
1: was your major?
2: Uh, business. Ah. So you can All imagine, right, sense of direction is yeah. uh, something that yeah. you know it's it's tough to get with a, such a broad you know degree, but something we're trying to figure out definitely this has yeah. been fantastic robert thank you thank you so much for your time and my um, pleasure you know we're excited to see where where things go from here you know just mm. kind of i remember just picking up your book 10 years ago and and as a i think i was a student in high school and like reading laws. 48 yeah. laws of power and i've definitely used uh, many of those things along the way and, yeah. and seen and you see a lot had, of it in so. the workplace yeah it's it's, weird. Weird.
0: It's, it's, it's it's awesome when it comes to life and you know whether it's with your boss or with other fellow employees or just the general sense of direction of where the company's headed and you're like huh you know the word and it's it's exactly like you said it's because it was from your real life story it repl- it resonates with everybody else yeah. as opposed to theoretical assumptions from professors at Harvard yeah. of and even like in business school where you're hearing from theoretical folks that have never done business of you know EBITDA and whatever it may be but you're like you've never done it yourself yeah, why I didn't should so I well to in those you classes. yeah so you know i like the practical advice and i think that's why you know i love hearing from you and you know hopefully you know our relationship grows throughout the sure. years and you know you're a mentor to us and everybody sure. else as well I'd so love to be. thank Definitely. you so much for your time thank you oh, my for having pleasure. us and You know, we hopefully can do this again when the next book comes out as well. Yeah, yeah. So thank you so much, Robert. I enjoyed
1: it. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you.